Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When most people think of frugality, they think of it primarily as a way to reduce spending so they can do things like pay off debt or save for a goal like retirement or a down payment on a home. It's seen as a personal finance tactic with purely utilitarian ends. But for philosophers and theologians going back all the way to ancient Greece, frugality was seen as an essential virtue in order to develop wisdom and true happiness. Today on the show, I talked to Emrys Westicott, the author of the book, The Wisdom of Frugality, about the philosophical history of penny pinching. We begin our conversation conversation discussing what philosophers mean by frugality and the various philosophical schools that it gave frugality primacy. We then go to summarize the arguments as to why frugality makes people wiser and happier, the counter arguments to frugality as a virtue, and why the ideal of frugality changes based on circumstances and why living frugally is harder to do today than in times past. This show provides a nuanced look at a much praised virtue and will leave you mulling over how, why, and to what extent to strive for it in your own life. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash frugal. Imris Westicott, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. So you are a professor of philosophy, and you've written a book called The Wisdom of Frugality, and it's all about frugality, this sort of penny-pitching or you know, doing things to save money, being resourceful. I'm curious, what's a philosophy professor doing writing a book about frugality? Well, I could make jokes there about my salary, I guess, couldn't I? But um, <laughs> it's, it is a, it's actually about more than frugality. It's about frugality and simple living. I, I started writing the book uh, because I was intrigued by the question, why do we consider frugality a virtue? Because it has been considered a virtue from ancient times all the way through Ben Franklin to today. And I actually got interested in the question because I was teaching a, an evening class called Tight Watery or The Good Life on a Dollar a Day. It was a kind of honors class at Alfred University where I work. Although there were some sort of um, amusing parts to it, like, you know, students learning how to cut each other's hair and having a class banquet for $10 made entirely of Depression-era recipes. Uh, there was actually quite a lot of philosophy in it. We read Epicurus and we read Thoreau and we read the Stoics and, um, and some contemporary critics of consumerism and this sort of thing. And that got me really thinking on these questions. But when I started writing about why we should consider frugality a virtue or why philosophers have considered frugality a virtue. I found it was very difficult to separate frugality from simple living in general. And so the, the topic of the book became broader. 
Okay. So as you mentioned, philosophers have been thinking about this idea of frugality, simple living, all the way going all the way back to Plato and Socrates. So when they when they talked about it, frugality or simple living, like what exactly do they mean? Because like I think the way we describe it, it's in a lot of ways it's probably the same today, but I'm sure they had some different implications for that word back then. I think that there's one aspect of frugality that has remained constant for a long time from Plato to um, Ben Franklin and, and today. And that is the idea of living frugally, meaning um, being fiscally prudent, living within your means, not getting into debt, not indulging in gross extravagances, which are going to land you in trouble later on. And, um, you know, most philosophers would advocate um, being fiscally prudent. But then most common, most financial advisors will too. Most people with common sense would. And in, in a way, although that's the first thing people think of perhaps when they talk about, when they think about frugality, it may be the least interesting aspect. What's more interesting is where you're talking about frugality and simple living in, in answer to the question, what kind of life should I lead? And, you know, for anyone who's read Plato's Republic, you'd remember that he says there that we're talking here, he says, about the most important question of all, which is how we ought to live. And so really it's a question about lifestyle and the choices you make. And um, one kind of lifestyle is to, to live simply in the sense of not just of, of um, staying within your means, but living cheaply, enjoying the simple pleasures, being self-sufficient, perhaps... Uh, practicing a certain amount of self-denial, perhaps staying close to nature, and all those senses. In, in the first chapter of the book, I, I look at many senses of the word, uh, many senses of the concept of simple living. And um, I think that they, they kind of form a family or a cluster that tend to hang together in a lot of people's mind. Yeah, and what I thought was I, was surprising as you went through back through the history of the philosophy of simple living and frugality is that everyone, even thousands of years ago, were pining for this age when things were simpler, right? <laughs> we think that's sort of a new thing, but like, no, even the ancient Greeks were looking for that idyllic age. Yeah, and as they say, nostalgia is not what it used to be, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it's an interesting thing that back, it, back two and a half thousand years ago, people were looking back to a time when people were more honest, they lived more simply, closer to the earth, they were less pretentious, less affected less bothered about material possessions, luxury and extravagance and that kind of thing. So, um, as they say, you know, the more things change, the more things remain the same. So are there any schools of philosophy that have particularly pushed frugality and simple living as a way of life? Yes, and I, and I think it's important to, to mention here that in ancient times, particularly with, we're talking here about largely about Western philosophy. In Western philosophy, you have the Greeks and the Romans. And for them, philosophy was very much a matter of philosophizing about life. The, the central question was, how should we live? What are the best lifestyles? And if you, be, if you joined a philosophical school like the Stoics or the Cynics or something like that, then you, it wasn't just a matter of holding certain beliefs. You would practice certain practices. You'd talk the talk and walk the walk. Probably the first school that really advocated frugality in a big way was the, the Cynics, uh, represented by people like Diogenes, who famously lived in a barrel and uh, with virtually no material possessions. There were the Epicureans, who um, they they were more self-indulgent than than the Cynics, but but still they lived simply. They they greatly valued living communally, friendship, just having simple meals with good friends, and and um, staying out of business like politics, which just makes you depressed. And then the Stoics later on, particularly the Roman Stoics, 
also um, very much advocated simple living and, and frugality as a way of toughening yourself to prepare for adversity, as a way of avoiding disappointment and, and that sort of thing. And then this continued on even throughout Western history, like Rousseau at the Enlightenment era really hit this simple living idea hard. Right. Now, Rousseau is not necessarily representative of the Enlightenment. He's a little bit more representative of Romanticism because he particularly opposes what is natural with with what is you know the result of civilization and he tends to be very critical of the the so-called uh, fruits and benefits of civilization and thinks that we we need to kind of get back to nature to some extent of course thoreau is uh, is in that tradition too along with a lot of other romantic writers so yeah uh, um, right up to the present day and and you've got uh, edward abbey and you've got um, you know plenty of people today who also advocate in one way or another a more simple lifestyle a, a kind of a movement back to nature and you you see it in all aspects of life in in the houses people live in in the kind of food they eat in the kind of work they do the clothes they wear so throughout western history frugality has been pushed and the reason why is because they a lot of philosophers viewed luxury and extravagance as moral failings and it's something to avoid why why is extravagance and luxury viewed as something that can hurt the soul yeah i, th- I think that it's a it's a very interesting question that and i, I think that one reason is that it's uh, associated perhaps with luxury is associated with softness uh, in the book i mentioned um, the spartans who were famous for their austere lifestyle and for their practice of really toughening people up in a big way so that they would make great warriors for most of human history life has been pretty uncertain for many people they were subject to diseases, subject to shortages, hardship, famine, the the oppression, war, this kind of thing. And so it was a pretty useful character trait to be able to stand up to adversity and not be crushed by it. I mean, by comparison, our lives are relatively comfortable and relatively safe, even though, of course, we still have poverty, we still have deprivation and injustice in, in some... But in a sense, we, we, we don't have to be quite as tough as people used to be, I don't think. I mean, some, sometimes life will throw us a curveball and we do need to be resilient. But our, the curveballs we get today are, uh, are rather less than people used to get on the whole, I think. And so that's, that's one reason, the, the issue of, of toughness and softness. I think another thing is simply uh, a slightly deeper issue is having sound values. The thing about luxury and extravagance is that um, if you go in for those, then you start to become obsessed with material possessions, with money, with wealth, with competition, with you know being superior to neighbors or to, to others. And, and that can incite other traits like envy or resentment or bitterness or frustration, uh, unsatisfied desires. And I think that there's, uh, those are some of the main reasons. In the book, I mentioned that um, a lot of the colleges in the United States were set up in rural locations precisely because people thought that these rural locations would keep people away from temptation, a bit like the the location of monasteries. Do you think there's a bit of sour grapes going on there too, like sort of a Nietzschean inversion of values where, you know, that's extravagance, all that great stuff is bad, this plain living, that's, that's the good stuff. Yeah, well, it could be someone like Nietzsche or, or someone else might say, well, yeah, these philosophers, they they basically, because they're, they're no good at making money, or perhaps because they're no good at really living interesting, adventurous lifestyles, you know, that's not their, their 
sort of thing. And so they, they praise to the hilt the kind of life that they're most comfortable living or the kind of life that they are capable of living. That would be, uh, Nietzsche does make that kind of um, accusation, although he himself, of course, is a classic example of a philosopher living a very, very frugal, simple lifestyle. I think that, uh, I don't know, there's something to that. There's also uh, another aspect, which is that simple living is also associated quite strongly in many people's minds with wisdom. And this is a very interesting question, because if you ask what is wisdom, I would say that wisdom, more than anything else, is having sound values. It's, it's knowing what's important and what's not. And if you go back to Plato and Socrates, I mean, and the Stoics and the rest, their, their basic argument is, is wisdom is all about having sound values. What matters to them, Plato and Socrates, is is being moral, being a virtuous person. What matters to Jesus is spirituality and a relationship to God. What matters to the Buddha is enlightenment. Uh, these are all kinds of wisdom, forms of wisdom. Luxury and extravagant tend to draw one away from those things towards false values, you know, the value of material possessions, of wealth and domination and that kind of thing. So you know, frugality has been called a virtue. Ben Franklin listed it as one of his 13 virtues he followed as a, a young man. But virtues, as we remember from Aristotle and Plato, they're, they're things that are good in, in and of themselves, so like things like justice, beauty, things like that. But whenever I think of frugality, I always think of the benefits that frugality provides me. So these are like prudential reasons, right? Like I save more money, I become more self-reliant, et cetera. So what's the case that frugality and simplicity are inherently good? Okay, I'd have to say you're asking the wrong person that question, and I'll tell you why. Because... That view, the view that something is inherently good, a, char- a certain character trait is inherently good, that is a, a view in philosophy known as virtue ethics. It's where you say, you know, what really matters is having certain virtues, certain character traits that are inherently good. And I'm not terribly sympathetic to that view. I'm more of what philosophers call a utilitarian. I think what is really good in the world is happiness, pleasure, well-being. Um, self-fulfillment, self-realization, and that kind of thing. These don't have to be, sim- they don't have to be bland. They don't have to be simple. They can be complex. There's, there's plenty of place in a good life, in, in a happy life, for pain and, and unhappiness, actually. And uh, so I wouldn't want to make it uncomplicated. I think, uh, I think uh, a fulfilling life can be a very complicated thing. But... Um, I think that all the traits that we think of as virtues, whether it's wisdom or frugality or um, generosity or courage or anything else you want, in, kindness and compassion, I think that we call them all good because we think that they in some way promote human well-being, human satisfaction, human happiness. So what are some of those ways that they make us happy? You mentioned a few uh, that make us happier, produce flourishing, uh, makes us more self-reliant, allows us to enjoy you know, simple pleasures. Are there any other ways that frugality and simple living can bring out human flourishing? Sure. I think, you know, the um, third chapter of the book is all about the, the association between um, living frugally and simply and being happy. I think that there's, there's a whole battery of arguments but it might be it might be good to to mention just one or two. I think one of the most interesting ones that's actually relevant to today's political and economic situation is this: that if you can make if you can get by on a few things, if you can reduce your basic needs and 
live simply, then you actually don't need to work as much, which means you can enjoy more leisure. This is very much an Epicurean kind of argument. Going back to Epicurus's philosophy, as he put it forward with his friends in the garden that he grew. And, you, you know, you at the moment in our society, we actually work, many people work quite hard. Many people work harder than they actually want to work. But we're actually entering an interesting and perhaps very difficult time where machines are taking over from human labor to quite an extent. And in some ways, you can imagine a future not too distant where there really is a need for people to work less and therefore find a way. I mean, maybe they'll earn less money. And so they need to find a way of living on less, yet enjoying life on less. And that might that's a matter of learning to perhaps cut back on the extravagances and on the luxuries, but also a way of making good use of your of your leisure time. So I think that's one of the most important arguments for simple living, which is it is a way of actually increasing your leisure. Another argument, it fosters a certain independence and self-sufficiency. In ancient times, when people thought about self-sufficiency and independence, the philosophers, what they really had in mind was not having to flatter people, not having to fawn to your superiors, not having to to be in someone else's pay kind of thing and always, you know, sort of um, uh, sort of sucking up to them. I think that nowadays, though, it's interesting that as we as our lives have become in some ways further removed from the the basic means of producing the means of life from growing food and making clothes and this kind of thing. And so in that sense, we're, you could say that we live rather alienated lives now, rather, rather distant from the fundamental means of production. Yet there's a, there's a tremendous interest in people going back to doing things like growing their own gardens and knitting their own sweaters and uh, just doing things for themselves. Doing things for yourself is immensely satisfying for many people. You can probably tell from my accent, I'm not originally American, I grew up in Britain. And one of the things that has really impressed me in the United States is how many guys I know who are fantastically self-sufficient. If the, you know, the people who can, can literally build houses, including the plumbing and the electricity and the foundations and the roof and the, the, the walls and everything by themselves. Most of my friends and family in Britain, by comparison, are lamentably unself-sufficient. I think, it's a, I think it's a very interesting feature of American culture is the, 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 the important, the value that's placed on people being capable of that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and in that self-sufficiency section, you talked about how you talked about Hegel's like master-slave, you know, metaphor that the master, you know, ends up kind of like in charge at first, but he begins, you know, delegating so many tasks to the slave that eventually the slave is in charge. And I've noticed that that kind of dichotomy play out in my own life, where I I outsource so many things to other people. I'm not saying these people are slaves, but just outsourcing to other people who do this work and like. I realize, boy, I'm not really in charge here. Like, <laughs> I, I wouldn't be able to do this for myself. These people are are in charge, you know, in a way. No, and and of course, one of the things is that the the role of technology in our lives makes the whole business of self sufficiency rather complicated. For example, I think I honestly, I'm not a great, I'm not great at car mechanics, but I do a little bit. But it might seems to me that it used to be an awful lot easier to fix your own car than now because so many things on your car now need a computerized computerized check with fancy equipment that you're just not going to have at home. And so it's almost like the, the technological trends almost force us in some ways to become 
less self-sufficient. Yet, on the other hand, some technology makes us more self-sufficient. So, for instance, now when, when we take photos with a digital camera, we don't send them away to be processed. We just process them ourselves. But we process them on our computer which, of course, we haven't built ourselves usually. We've, done, we've just, you know, we're, so we're, we're heavily dependent on the technology. But in some ways, the technology allows us to be more self-sufficient, just like a washing machine allows you to wash your own clothes rather than send them out to the, to the washerwoman. Well, one issue you bring up about frugality, sort of the, the problems of frugality in our, in our modern world, is that you just mentioned one of it. It's hard to be frugal in some ways in our sort of dynamic, interconnected, specialized, tech-infused economy that we have. And I've noticed in my own life, when I try to you know, follow the traditionally frugal path, I'm going to do it myself, I end up actually spending more money, more time, and you make the seven trips to Home Depot over and over again because you got the wrong part. So, I mean, is it becoming harder to live frugally in our sort of modern world? I, th I think in, in some ways, yes. I, I think on the one hand, we do have more options in some ways, but it's a matter of, you know, how much you want to be on the grid or off the grid. Uh, a really good example is, let's say, having a smartphone. I mean, having a smartphone, obviously no one thought about that 30 years ago. Now, if you're a, an ordinary person with a, you know, a professional kind of job living in a city, it's pretty hard to manage without a smartphone. It's expected. If you're applying for a job, and you know, to not have a smartphone now when you're, when you're in the business of running around applying for jobs or something, is, um, would, be, would be like not having an address. You know, uh, if you go to college, let's say, or you know, I'm a college teacher and all the students have have phones, uh, you know, cell phones, usually smartphones now. And to not have one would be to be completely cut out of the loop. You wouldn't know what was going on. You'd never get any invitations to anything. And so you're virtually forced. There's a wonderful phrase by Juliet Shaw, a, a social critic that I, I like. And she said, you know, the, the old phrase is uh, necessity is the mother of invention. She said invention is the mother of necessity in the modern world because, you know, people invent things. And at first, they're luxuries, like remote controls on TVs used to be luxuries. But who'd buy a TV without a remote control now? Or an answering machine, or, except the answering machines are on the way out because no, now people are getting rid of the landlines. You know, it's, it, it, you, you, you really have a hard time if you don't keep up with the technology. But the technology costs money, and it's expensive, and it's complicated, and it breaks down on you sometimes. One argument you made in the book was that, you know, we praise frugality and we publicly eschew extravagance, right? We look down upon it. But you point out there's actually some great benefits to extravagant living that we all benefit from as a, as a culture. What are some of those benefits? Well, the, mo the most obvious thing when you think about it is, is just think about where you go if you're on holiday, where you go as a tourist. You know, if you go to Europe, let's say, you'd go to see the Renaissance art of, of uh, Florence, You'd go to see perhaps the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican. You might go to see the Palace at Versailles. Further afield, you might go to the Taj Mahal or something. What are these? These are all basically monuments to the extravagance of long dead fat cats. I mean, that's what they are. They're, they're fantastic works of art and architecture that were very expensive to produce. But we don't now wish that those people had lived frugally. You know, the people who hired uh, Haydn and uh, Mozart and people like that as court musicians or as commissioned their, their musical works, we don't wish they'd lived more frugally. We're glad that they hired these musicians. We're glad that they commissioned the works. And, um, and so, you know, one way of putting it is, you know, extravagance produces the stuff of culture, which we're all grateful for. We don't really, I mean, Socrates in the Republic fantasizes about everyone sitting around on logs just 
you know, drinking water and having philosophical conversations. But most of us, you know, as his interlocutors say in the Republic, that sounds a bit boring, Socrates. I mean, could we have a bit more? And most of us actually do rather relish the fruits of civilization, which are also the fruits of extravagance. On a more personal level, if I, um, if I say, stand up in front of my class of students and I describe, um, let's say, the ideal life according to Epicurus, like where you, you basically live in a house with a nice garden growing some vegetables and you live there with friends and every evening you have a meal together and you do a bit of writing and you do a bit of weeding and you do a bit of conversing and you lounge around in a hammock and that's your life. A lot of them would say, that's not what I want, that's boring. I want to travel, I want to see things, I want to do things, I want to make things, I want to get somewhere. And you know, In other words, they, they've got a different vision, a much more sort of active, adventurous, dynamic vision of what the good life is. And that's because we, we in a way, we, we live in modern times where a lot of the basics are taken care of. For most people throughout human history, I think actually a life where you avoided famine, pestilence, disease, plague, uh, war, and oppression was a, you know, and tragedy was a pretty good life. But for most of us now, it's not enough. Most of us want, we, we take all that for granted that we're not going to die in a famine or a plague. And we now want to do more with our lives. We want adventure and excitement. Yeah. I mean, as I read your book, I, I found myself thinking, finding that frugality, the concept of frugality or simple living was a lot more slippery than we often think it is. We often think it in very cut black and white, but it changes. Like the concept of frugality changes based on our standard of livings. What's frugal, you know, a hundred years ago is, you know, just being a tightwad right today but and so it's there's a relevant there's it's, it's, it is sort of relative I mean, for example um sort of this um the, the relativity of frugality and extravagance you know like say a person who's making fifty thousand dollars a year buys a, a five thousand dollar watch well we would say that's not being frugal but like if you make ten million dollars a year you know a five thousand dollar watch is a drop in the bucket it's like i think it'd be 0.05 percent of income maybe but we still we we would still think like i think on a gut level like that guy with $10 million buying the $5,000 watch, well, that's being extravagant. What's going on there, do you think? I think what's going on is there's two notions of extravagance. The millionaire who buys the, you know, the, the expensive watch, the $20,000 Rolex or something, they're not being extravagant in the sense that they are landing themselves in debt and it's all going to end in, in tears. No, I mean, they're filthy rich and they can do, you know, they can buy several Rolexes, right? But they're, they're being extravagant in another sense, in the sense that they're, they're just throwing the money around. You, you know, and, and there are two points, two critical points a lot of moral philosophers would make, when I, I'd make them too. One is, that you could say that money could be much better spent on you know more more worthwhile things. The other and that point is made very often. The other point though is that what does it say about the person? What does it say about a person that they um, they want to buy a twenty thousand dollar watch? I mean, why do they want it? What's the point? Surely the point is uh, there can only be one point really, and that is to show off to other people how much money they've got. Because, I mean, they might make other arguments. They might say, oh, no, it's just a beautiful artifact and I enjoy looking at it. I'm inclined to say, no, it's rubbish. You, you basically, you want to show off how much money you've got. And, and I think that people are justifiably, reasonably suspicious of that sort of motive. Say, so what, what kind of person is it who is so concerned to uh, display their wealth. So we've talked about some of the, a lot of the benefits of frugality, self-sufficiency, just enjoying simple pleasures, things like that. So I, I think people in, intuitively understand 
the benefits of living a simple lifestyle. And I think we all yearn for it, right? There's, I mean, there's tons of books, blogs, magazines, all about this topic and how to live this simple lifestyle, which I think is kind of ironic, right? There's like a whole, there's a whole industry dedicated to simple living. Why is it like we know the benefits, but we don't live frugally. So what's going on? Why, why is there the disconnect between desire and behavior? <laughs> yeah, that is, that's a bit of a million dollar question. I'll be quite honest in, in the book. I mean, in, that is one of the guiding questions of the book. The philosophers for two and a half thousand years have been telling us to live frugally and simply. Why have they had such a hard time persuading the majority of people? And and to, to, to be quite honest, I don't think that I come up with a, a single or simple answer or complete answer to that question. I think that one reason is that human beings do have a tendency, many of us, all of us perhaps sometimes, to favor short-term goals over long-term goals. And so we see something we want, whatever it is, and we perhaps can't really afford it, but we'll do it anyway. We'll get it anyway, whether it's a house or a holiday or or a watch or whatever. In a sense, and we, we put our, our you know, short-term goals before our long-term goals and you know, and we just, we just uh, the short-term pleasures have a tremendous sort of magnetic attraction to us. That's one reason. But the, I think the deeper reason is that we are also products of our culture. We're shaped by our culture to a very great extent. And it's very difficult not to take on the values of the culture. People wear Rolex watches, people buy houses they can't afford, and we all do these kind of things to some extent because we live in a culture where money really does talk. It really matters. It's a fundamental value. And people who are rich do, they are looked up to, they do enjoy a kind of greater level of respect and esteem. They do have more power and influence on the whole. And, and um, you know, it's one of the primary markers of one's place on the totem pole, just how much money you got. And if you want other people to know where you stand on the totem pole, you got to spend the money. So I think we, you know, it's very, very difficult to be immune from the cultural pressures of the society around us. So we talked about philosophers who have praised, you know, simplicity and frugal living and um, extravagance and luxury. Are, are there any philosophers, did these same philosophers who praised frugality, did they condemn like miserliness as well? Or were they like, yeah, let's go all in, just like be super penny pincher, Scrooge McDuck? As usual, Aristotle is the one who, who, goes for balance. Uh, someone once said, you know, as I get older, I find Aristotle gets smarter. And, and it's really true. You know, Aristotle has a moral philosophy where he often says that the most desirable character trait is a, is a, a sort of mean between two extremes. So, you know, courage is, lies between recklessness, which is kind of too much courage, courage without wisdom, and cowardice, which is a, a vice. He goes through a lot of virtues like that. Now, he actually does praise, in a way, extravagance. That is, he condemns miserliness. Miserliness is a, is a failing. It's a moral failing. But the extreme of extravagance is, where, is profligacy. It's where you're just throwing money around right at the center. And that's foolish. That, and so the, 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 between those would be a, a, a proper, not extravagance, but a proper generosity, right? A, a liberality, a sort of, you don't put so much value on money that you, you're tight-fisted with it. You, you show a proper generosity at the same time. You're not stupid about it. When it comes to what you might call extravagance, Aristotle does praise what he calls magnificence. And it's, this is a very interesting concept. The, let's imagine, he says most people can't practice magnificence. Magnificence requires you to be one of the, the very wealthy. One of the, you've got to be in the 1%. Um, to not, to the parsimoniousness, 
would be where you've got tons of money, but you're really cheap about it. You really still don't do anything with it. You just hoard it. But on the other hand, the, 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 the bad extreme at the other end would be a kind of vulgar extravagance where you, you just sort of make vulgar displays of how wealthy you are. What's in the middle is something like, in Aristotle's day, someone, for instance, providing funds for the building of a public temple or providing funds for the, to help pay for a, a sports event or something like that. And today you might think of philanthropists who, who you know, give a lot of money to worthy causes like um, attacking, you know, fighting diseases, or for that matter, sponsoring museums, um, endowing universities and that kind of thing. That, Aristotle is one of the people who says, yeah, that's, that's a virtue, although most people can't practice it. As you've been thinking about and you've written this book, how do you find your approach to frugality and simple living? Has it changed any at all since you began this project? That's a difficult question. First of all, I'd want to make make it clear that I don't, I would n- never hold myself up as a, a paragon of frugality and simple living. It's true that living in a rural community in a small college town in western New York, it is actually quite easy to live somewhat simply, you know, walk to work, come home, you know, the, the, the probably the most common kind of social entertainment that I go in for is just having potluck dinners at people's houses, you know, and, and hosting them too. So in this, the, the, just the where I live and the community I belong to uh, enables me to, to live simply in some ways. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I'm especially frugal. For instance, you know, I like to travel. This summer we'll be going to, you know, back to visit friends and family in Britain and that all costs money. I think it's, it's made me more self-aware, I think, writing the book and thinking long and hard about all these things. I'm very enthusiastic, grow my own vegetables gardener. I have lots of raised beds with, with vegetables in them. I'm looking out of the window now and everything's covered in snow. <laughs> but uh, so, you know, it, it, I think it's made me more self-aware and particularly more self-aware of the value of the, the simple pleasures, the pleasures of friendship, communal eating, growing your own vegetables, you know, that kind of thing. I, I, but but I, I'm inclined to think I was already that way disposed anyway. So it seems like you're, you're taking uh, sort of an Aristotelian approach, right? <laughs> sort of. Tell you one thing where it's actually may have had an opposite effect. Because it also, you, you mentioned earlier, miserliness. One of the things is that if you, if you go in for frugality, you, there is a danger that you'll start to develop, for instance, ungenerosity, a lack of generosity or miserliness or something like that. This was, you know, um, something that people back in ancient times also warned against. And one, one, of the, one sort of slightly um, subtle way in which this can manifest itself is, is you can sometimes, let's suppose you're, you're, you can afford something, and it is something that would be a good thing to get, but it would, be, it would save you a lot of trouble. And yet you don't do it just because you've bought into the idea of, of frugality. Let's say there's a meal on a restaurant you really want. You can afford it. Let's say it's twenty dollars or something. But you say, "I'm not going to pay twenty dollars for that." So you you don't do it, and so you deprive yourself of a perfectly perfectly enjoyable experience. Or you know, you you don't take a taxi. Instead, you walk for an hour in the rain or something, and it's totally miserable. And the truth is, it would have been worth twenty dollars or whatever. You know. So I I actually think I've in my life I think I've done that quite a few times, and maybe I'm just maybe that's that's my my spouse about whether this is true but maybe i'm i'm improving I, i'm i'm so in that sense it's made me perhaps a little less frugal i don't know if you if you've ever done anything like that uh no yeah i mean yeah i've as i've 
it's just all about wisdom. You're know, trying to be making better choices. And yeah, I've indulged myself a little bit more where I can afford it and like it actually made my life better. Yeah, but I've, I'm definitely in that mode where like, no, we're not going to spend money on that because that's just a waste of money. But it would be better if I... But and then sometimes, don't you find sometimes afterwards you think, you know what? That was stupid. I was in that place once in my life and for $15, I could have done that thing, seen that site, whatever, and I didn't. And I wouldn't miss that $15 now, but I'll never have that experience. You can't take the money with you to the grave. Well, Imris, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about your book and your work? Sure. You could just go to my website uh, to learn more about my work because I publish other things, write other things as well. And uh, if you just Google my name, Emerus Westercott, the first site you'll come to will be my homepage, which has got stuff about the classes I teach and the articles I've written and things like that. To, for the book, you can um, go straight to Princeton University Press and, and, uh, or Amazon or whatever. Well, Imris Westacott, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was Imris Westacott. He's the author of the book, The Wisdom of Frugality. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Go pick it up. It's a great book. Also, make sure to check out our show notes at aom.is slash frugal, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoyed this podcast and have gotten something out of it, I'd really appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps us out a lot in spreading the word about the show. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.